You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually, because, you, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Um, it's good to be with you. I've been away quite a bit this summer, so it's good to be at Headley Park. There is a mistake on there which I haven't had time to correct because I didn't know what the page number was. So I put one, two, three, four. So ignore that bit because I think the page number is 1186. I didn't have this Bible at home, so just that, that bit is wrong. Um, there might be other things I say that are wrong as well, but you'll have to correct me afterwards. Um, but we're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. And probably like all youngsters growing up, um, there were people, uh, well, people, you want to be like someone. So for me, I don't know if you recognize any of these people. Um, okay, so I like cricket. Cricket's my favorite sport. And so I grew up in the era of De um, David Gower, but he was a left-handed batsman. I'm not left-handed, nor a batsman. I'm, I'm into fielding. So Derek Randall, who was quite an... A, a, well, quite an unusual character. I wanted to be like Derek Randall. And because I was a wicketkeeper, then it was Alan Knott and Bob Taylor. So those were my sort of, these are what I want to be when I grow up type, type of people, all right? It never happened. Um, but I suppose as I look back over 42 years of being a Christian, there are people that I have admired and still do admire, and they are good role models. So I think of lots of people who've been a huge influence on me. 
And including that, I include my mum and dad. So my mum and dad are 82 and 83, or 81, nearly 82 and 83. And uh, in the summer, they said, we're willing to come to the, the Christian conference you're going to do, but instead we decided to help with the Holiday Bible Club. And I'm saying, mum and dad, you're 82, 83, you know. But so my mum and dad are those kind of people who I admire and look up to. And uh, maybe the question for you is, which Christian or Christians do you admire? And both chapters one and chapter two of uh, Thessalonians give us examples to follow. And both Paul himself, who wrote the epistle, and the Thessalonians to whom it was written. And last week, uh, the verse one, chapter one, verse seven, it says, you became, this is talking to the Thessalonians, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And so here were these Christians who were role models, examples. And chapter one was very much about the conversion experience of the Thessalonian believers and the outworking of that. And that made, as Amy's reminded us, Paul very happy, full of joy. In fact, at the end of chapter two, he says that, no, you are my joy and my crown and my glory. And so Paul was thrilled with what the Thessalonians were doing. And uh, Neil also mentioned last week a quote of uh, George Muller. We wrote in one of his journals. He said, the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. So being thankful, rejoicing is a good thing to do, to be happy in the Lord, but to be rejoicing in other Christians. And so as we come to chapter two, um, we see really sort of they're developing growth in the Lord. And you get to verse 13, and it says this, verses 12 and 13, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually. So there's the thanking God again, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. And if you look at the, just I highlighted a few words in there. Uh, you have basically the work of God. It says that in verse 13, through the word of God, also in verse 13, so that they might walk worthy of God. Okay, so that's really what Paul is thanking God for, that God's word is taking root in these uh, these lives of the Thessalonians, such that they're living lives which are pleasing to God. And so that's our big challenge, if you like, our big application to the, tonight is this. Are we those same kind of people where God's word is effective in our lives and we're letting it work in our lives so that people can see that we're walking a life worthy of him uh, to his glory and to his praise? Just a reminder, of how this church came into being. We read it in Acts chapter 17. Paul only spent three Sabbaths in Thessalonica. And in that short time, Paul went into the synagogue and explained the gospel, the good news of Jesus, using the Old Testament scriptures. And many were converted. This is Acts 17 verse 4. And the church was formed and they met in uh, Jason's house. Now, to me, Jason's not really a Bible name, but it is there, okay, in Acts chapter 17. Uh, met in Jason's house. However, some of the Jews opposed. 
And Paul was driven out of the city and fled to a place called Berea. And um, Paul himself wanted to go back to Thessalonica, but was prevented from doing so. You can read that in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 18. Paul wanted to go back, but it says that he was prevented from doing so. So instead, he had a plan B. And his plan B was to send Timothy back to um, Thessalonica. So when Timothy was at Berea, he was sent back to Thessalonica. And then Paul went on his journey from Berea to um, Corinth. And uh, Timothy came back to Corinth and reported to Paul, they're doing okay. These Thessalonian believers are doing okay. So he brings back a good report. You can read that in chapter 3, verse 6. But there were some things that Paul says, I do need to sort out. So in chapter 3, verse 10, there were some things that were lacking in their faith, particularly to do with their understanding of the Lord's second coming. So that's how the church came into being. It's all quite important. This is only a short space of time that he was in Thessalonica. Now, I don't know how um, good your memory is. This name has been in the news this summer. Okay, so I'll say the name, and um, you can pretend that you can remember this new story. Andy Malkinson. Hmm. Hmm, okay. He was the chap who, uh, sort of July, August, he was released from prison after 17 years when his conviction for assaulting a woman was uh, quashed. And so having spent 17 years in prison, he was released. Now, I don't know what those 17 years were like. What must it have been like to sort of um, say, I'm innocent, and no one really listened to you until 17 years later? And what is it like to um, feel like to be freed when well, he's, he's given some interviews? And I guess all of us, to a lesser or greater extent, have had those times when you think, ooh, that's an unfair accusation. Do you ever feel that nurse been falsely accused? Well, Paul, he was forced to leave the city very hastily because the, the Jews were um, chasing him out. And maybe for these new believers, everything was a bit of a blur. So Paul had come in. They'd had about three, well, three Sabbaths of, of teaching from the Old Testament scriptures. Paul disappeared, and Paul's enemies, they were soon on the case and were accusing Paul of being a greedy con man. And you get that in chapter 2, verse 3. Um, we'll come back to some of these things, but you have these accusations, and Paul is writing to say, look, it's not true. I am not a phony. I do genuinely and honestly care for you. And so this is the thrust of our passage uh, today. So, for example, in verses 3 and 5, we'll come back to this, Paul um, sort of deals with some of the accusations that he has given. But then if you read the whole chapter, or um, the first 11 verses, I've highlighted one phrase that occurs four times. Paul, and this, this phrase, you know, also is in chapter 1 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5. But four times in this section, 
Paul says to the Thessalonians, look, you know. And verse 2, you know. Verse 5, you know. Verse 11, you know. So Paul is saying, despite what other people are saying, you know it's not true. Okay, so Paul is appealing to the Thessalonians. And as you go through this in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, God is my witness. And then in verse 10, he says, the Thessalonian believers are a witness. So you get the, the, the sense of what's happening in this passage. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians saying, look, you know what's right, what's true. And despite what others are saying, I am not a phony. I genuinely care for you. Now, there's a lot to cover in these 16 verses. And um, Alison, who might be watching tonight, if she's got all that technology, said, no, no, keep it simple. So I've got lots of points. But what I will do is at the end, I'll summarize the, the passage with four words. So if you forget everything else, remember the four words. Does that sound like a fair deal? Oh, good. Okay. Um, now, it's quite warm in here because um, Yvonne has already opened the windows. So hopefully you'll get to the four words. But I put here four things you need to be. That's the title, four things you need to be. And the first thing is this. Uh, this is what Paul was. It's uh, Paul's accountability as a steward, verses 1 to 6. I don't know if you've ever been given the responsibility of looking after something precious for a friend or for a neighbour. Maybe when they go on holiday and they knock on your door and say, can you look after the cat or the plants? I don't know which is more precious. <laughs> All right. And you, you've got this massive responsibility now. I hope the cat doesn't die when I, they're away, you know. Or I hope the plants don't die when they're away. And you've got this, you're entrusted with this, this job. You are, in fact, the Bible word is a steward. You've got this responsibility. Now, um, I've got a watch that doesn't work. Um, this, is, this is an expensive watch. Um, have you heard of the Swiss watchmaker Patek Philippe? They are luxury watches. This one is probably about £60,000, okay? Now, they have a slogan. This is their slogan. You never actually own a Patek Philippe. You merely take care of it for the next generation. That's a good little phrase, isn't it? You never own a Patek, a Patek Philippe. You merely take care of it for the next generation. And this is what Paul is driving at in these first six verses. His argument is this, I'm accountable to God because he has entrusted me with the gospel. So the word gospel is in verse 2, and the, word, the phrase gospel of God is uh, in verse 8 and in verse 9. And as you read verses 4 to 5, this is what it says. We speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. 
You know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. So Paul is saying, I am a steward of the gospel of God. This is what God has entrusted to me. And I have a responsibility to look after it. Actually, I don't actually own it, but I need to make sure that I am passing on, in fact, to the next generation intact, that I'm not tampering with it. And Paul says, look, there are lots of people who are accusing me of all kinds of things. Now, we are all involved in the Great Commission, and we've all been given different gifts to use in that task. So we are all stewards of the gifts that God has given us to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And we need to be faithful stewards. So last Sunday, I was speaking at a, a, um, a conference and I was asked to speak on Matthew 24, verse 44, which is be ready. So you don't know when Jesus will come again. And in that context, it says, um, it talks about a faithful and wise servant whom the master's put in charge of all his possessions. And it says, whom the master finds him doing so, looking after those possessions when he returns. And so we have this responsibility, just as Paul had, to be faithful stewards. And Paul says, even when it's tough, this is my responsibility. So three things that the enemies um, did, the way they attacked the Apostle Paul. First of all, they attacked his message. So in verse three, the accusation was that the message that Paul was bringing was springing from error. Now, Paul was not a man pleaser, and it, to him, it was more important to obey God and serve him and not to tickle the ears of people and to give them what they wanted to hear. And so they said, the enemies, look, his message springs from error. And he said, no, it's the gospel I'm declaring. I dare to declare, he says, basically, the gospel. I cannot tamper with it. So I will preach sin and its consequences. I will preach Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. I will preach his atoning sacrifice on the cross. Even if it's not popular, I am not here, the phrase in this, this chapter is to please people. I'm not here to please people. I'm here to obey God. And Paul says, that is what I want to do. So you might attack me and the message, but I'm saying, Paul says, I am declaring the gospel of God. Then they attacked his motives. And you've got in verse three, it says impure motives. In verse five, it says greed. In verse six, it talks about praise from people. And Paul's motives were being questioned particularly with regard to money. And he had to defend himself against the accusations of preaching for financial gain. And he said, look, I'm open and honest in all my dealings. And Paul was not after a well done from his listeners. He said he did not seek the praise of people. In fact, he says, I will do everything, working hard day and night, 
verse 9, to show that I'm not here to gain financial reward. I'm living for the gospel. And he, this is where Nepal uh, was a tent maker. He made tents for his living, and that was supporting him in gospel work. So both Paul and Barnabas <coughs> worked for a living. And he said, no one can accuse me of being in for financial gain. I'm willingly serving at cost to myself. And that's a good challenge for all of us. You know, are we blameless in our motives in gospel work? Now, it might not be financial gain, but sometimes do we do gospel work because we want to be noticed? We want the praise of people. We want that well done from other people. And Paul said, look, we're here to serve Christ. We're here with blameless motives. We give ourselves wholeheartedly to him. And we are prepared to make a cost. And for Paul, it meant constant labor, both night and day. For us, it might mean differently. But what it is, is are we serving Christ with pure motives, not like the accusation in verse 3 and verse 3, uh, impure motives? And then they attacked his methods as well. In verse 3, at the end, they've talked about trickery. And in verse 5, it talks about flattery. And they said, look, Paul is, is a deceiver. He flatters. His methods are, are dubious. They're suspect. But Paul says, there is no flattery. I boldly declare the gospel of God. And he says, actually, what happened in Philippi, and in the NIV, it's, it's a great word. It says, we had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi. So for him... Now, he was willing to keep going through the suffering that he had endured in Philippi and preach the gospel, whatever the consequences. Nothing could stop them. They simply wanted to declare the gospel of God. He didn't want to give up. He knew the gospel was entrusted to him, and he wanted to share it, whatever the cost. And he preached. He preached in Philippi. He preached in Berea. He preached uh, before Berea in Thessalonica. And it says he did it with the help of God, verse 2. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. And so the challenge for us, as we think about being a steward, we are all stewards of the gospel of God. We're all part of preserving and passing on what is not ours but what is given to us and whatever gifts we have we use them faithfully for his service and despite the opposition we might receive from some if they attack our message if they attack they attack our motives if they attack our methods we're saying look i want to serve and be a good steward of that precious thing that he has given me Secondly, verses 7 and 8, Paul's affection as a mother. Um, well, that is, if you didn't know, that is a Sicilian, all right? It's a sort of a snake-like, worm-like creature, um, amphibian. 
and uh, providing food for a newborn or their newborn remains a top priority for a Sicilian. And well, I think it's a top priority for any mother, really. Uh, but a Sicilian mother will feed its young with its own skin, which is rich in fat, all right? It's just nature, Polly. That's all it is. It's nature, all right? And the young, which have, they have teeth, um, small teeth. What they do is they increase their weight by 10 times in the first week because when they're born, they, they rip into a feeding frenzy and rip the skin away from the mother. Okay, this is happening all the time without you knowing about it. Okay, now, mothers both care affectionately and give sacrificially, don't they? And so that's the, the purpose of that illustration. And Paul goes on to describing himself as a faithful steward to talk about being the affection and gentleness and sacrificial love of a mother. So um, in verse seven, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, and this is a sacrificial bit, but our lives as well. So Paul says, I loved you and I gave myself for you, which is what Christ has done for Paul. And so how much effort and time and energy and tears and heartache and anxiety and worry and selflessness and protection and patience does a mother give to a child? Well, for those of you who are mothers, you think, oh dear, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough, isn't it? But you do so because you love your children. And Paul says, in the same way as a mother does that to a child, cares affectionately, gives sacrificially, that is what I want to do for you, Thessalonian believers. They had become very dear to him. And I guess in the same way, if we are Christians, especially if we're mature Christians, we should devote if you like, the same all-consuming care to the nurture and development of other Christians, younger Christians. And there should be an intentionality about it. In other words, it, just, it doesn't just happen when we bump into each other on a Sunday. It's good to use those times, but Paul says, no, my care for you, you believers in Thessalonica, is that I will give my life to you. And Paul said, I'm desperate to get back. I want to serve. I can't get back. I'll send Timothy. There was an intentional love and care and sacrifice as he wanted to look after those Christians. Do we share our lives for the care and nurture and development of other Christians? Are other Christians so dear to us that we long to be with them so that they might grow in the Lord. Now, mums, do your children get on your nerves sometimes? You can, you can answer honestly. You don't have to whisper because I know what the answer is. Right? They do. All right? Other Christians 
They can be so annoying sometimes. But that is not a reason not to care for them or to give sacrificially to them, to give your lives to them. And so Paul says, I've got this accountability as a steward and I have this affection as a mother. Thirdly, Paul's advice as a father. Back in the 1950s, there was an American sitcom called Father Knows Best. It ran for about 200 episodes. And um, the lead character was a, a chap called Jim Anderson. And his role, and I quote, was that of a thoughtful father who offered sage advice whenever one or more of his children had a problem. That was the whole sort of a basis of this TV series. Now, I don't know whether that program would work in the 2020s, whether it's politically correct or not, um, but maybe it won't. But giving wise advice is a quality that a father should have. And this section, verses 9 to 12, is a particular challenge because it assumes the qualities that a physical father should have and then applies them to being a spiritual father. So for those of us who are fathers, we're doubly challenged. We need to ask ourselves, are we displaying those qualities as a natural father? But Paul's point is, I want to apply it to my care for these if like spiritual children, the people from Thessalonica. And I think there are three things that he says uh, as advice as a father in this section. Firstly, he says, um, our work should be a witness. Uh, you notice that in verse, um, where is it? verse 9, it says, our, our toil and hardship, we work night and day in order not to be a burden to you. He says, look, hard work is a good thing. Now, later, the reason I mentioned it, because later, it's a big theme that Paul mentions in Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians 3, he talks about those who are idle, those who are lazy, those who don't work. So Paul worked hard as a tent maker to pay his own way and to teach also about working hard. And a spiritual father should teach the whole principle of hard work for the Lord. Laziness is not an option. And Paul worked night and day for two reasons. One, so he could preach the gospel, and two, so that he wouldn't be a burden on other Christians. That comes out in this chapter. And that's a challenge. You know, whatever God has given us to do, both in a secular context and a spiritual context, we should be hard workers. And that itself becomes an example to other believers. So Paul is saying, I've worked hard to be an example. I want you to work hard, both in your secular job, that comes in 2 Thessalonians, but also in your spiritual service. Uh, this is the verse from Ecclesiastes, if you can remember this one, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Ecclesiastes 9, 10. Then Paul says, as a father, I want you to know that your walk, our walk before the Lord should be worthy. So look at verses 10 and verses 12. 
he, Paul appeals to the Thessalonians and describes that his behavior was worthy of being a Christian. It set an example. And he says, look, I can call on you as witnesses to this fact. So if I was to be in a court of law, I could call on you to testify that I've lived a life worthy of the gospel. And he uses these words, holy and righteous and blameless. They describe different aspects of godly living. But Paul is saying, look, I'm set apart for God. I want to live uprightly for him, and I want to be blameless, so that no one can point the finger at me and saying, aha, you're failing in that area. And people need to see in us a clear and definite testimony that we are holy and upright or righteous and blameless. That means Monday morning at work. That means with your next door neighbor. Okay, wherever you are, people need to see that you're walking a life worthy of the Lord. And the other thing Paul says, and this is where um, basically the sort of the worldly uh, vocal advice, our words should be wise. wise. He says these phrases, uh, encouraging and comforting and urging. That's in verse 12. He says, look, wherever you are in your Christian life, I want to encourage you. If you're going through a tough time, I want to comfort you. In fact, I want to plead with you, urge you, inspire you just to keep going on with the Lord. So who am I encouraging and comforting and urging? And am I willing to be encouraged and comforted and urged in the ways of the Lord? Who am I seeking to help and who am I listening to so that I grow as a Christian? So Paul's advice as a father. And finally, Paul's appreciation as a brother, verses 13 to 16. Don't panic. The four words are still coming. So if you forget everything so far, we'll go back to four words. Um, in 2014, Russia invaded Ukraine. And there's a story, I won't go into the, the details because it's too horrific to share. But there was a 14 year old boy, this is back in 2014, uh, a Christian boy, who was tortured terribly for his faith. Incredibly, uh, yeah, the, the details are, are shocking. But he never gave in. He said, I'm not going to disown the Lord Jesus Christ as my saviour. Eight years later, many Christians are willing to stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ in the toughest of situations, both in the war context, but also in a persecution context. Why? Because they know the story of this 14-year-old boy who stood firm in 2014 and didn't waver in his faith for the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is the example, one example of, a, of Christians accepting the suffering that was coming their way because they'd seen another Christian stand firm for the Lord Jesus. And in these last few verses, Paul is thanking God for the church 
and highlighting some of the qualities that these Thessalonians had, including standing firm for Christ. So three things very quickly. Verse 13, they applied the scriptures. We started with this really. We thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God. They applied the scriptures. They knew that they were from God, not from men, and they took them seriously. And they knew, these Thessalonian believers, that God's word, the scriptures, could work in their lives for their growth and development. Which begs the question, if you are serious about growing and progressing as a Christian, then the word of God has to be prominent in your life. It's a simple formula in some ways. The more you spend time in God's word yourself, listening to it, talking about it, the more you let it work in you and submit to it, the more you will grow. That's what verse 13 is saying. Um, I couldn't think of a better alliteration, so apologies, Alison, if you're watching. Uh, they adopted the standards. What I mean by that is this. Not only did they take God's word seriously, as an example, they grew healthily in the Lord when they started imitating other believers and followed their standards, their good standards. And it's particularly mentioned in relation to suffering. We'll come on to that in a second. But we should be looking at the faith and the outworking of faith in the lives of others and imitating what is good in the life of others. So we can imitate healthy marriages. So we look to those who are displaying healthy marriages and we copy. We can imitate servanthood. We see those who are servant-hearted and say, that is what I would want to be for the Lord. We can imitate good parenthood. We can imitate prayer lives. We can imitate boldness in witnessing. Um, so for me, one of those examples is Roger Carswell. Some of you know him. Um, he's still serving uh, the Lord and witnessing. We can imitate trusting God through tough times when we see others doing that. And actually, it's pride that tells us we don't need to learn from others. Okay, so let's look at the good role models within this church further afield and say, that is what I want to be like. So Paul says, be imitators of me as I am also of Christ. So there are, there's a biblical thing is to copy, to imitate other Christians who are walking with the Lord. And however long you've been a Christian, you can still do it. Okay, so, um, so that's why I mentioned my mum and dad. So I trust if I get to 82, 83, that I'm still serving the Lord as much as my mum and dad are doing now. They are a good example. I want to follow that example. And then finally, they accepted the suffering. So when the Thessalonians welcomed the word, they were also welcoming suffering. They knew that Paul and uh, Silas and Luke and Timothy had suffered in Philippi. And so they were inviting persecution to be part of their lives. 
and they became imitators of those who went before them. And there's quite a bit in these verses, but Paul basically reassures them and says, look, persecutors can be religious, but they displease God. But one day, this is really uh, verse 16, one day God will bring justice and punishment on those who oppose the gospel. To that end, we can stand up for Christ with confidence, knowing that he will sort it in the end. That's true for tomorrow. That's true if you are in Ukraine, or actually Northern India is a big, you know, Manipur. Uh, 300 churches burnt down this year in Manipur, Northern India. Okay, they can stand firm for the gospel, knowing that God will sort it out in the end. Okay, you can forget all that if you want to, and just remember the four words. These are the four words. The first point is all about integrity, okay, especially in keeping the gospel pure. Right, so are you living a life of integrity? Are you looking after the gospel by both how you teach it and how you live a life? Is it worthy of the gospel? So the big word is integrity. The second big word is intentionality. Okay, you've got to be intentional about your care for other Christians. It doesn't just happen because you happen to be in the same building for an hour on a Sunday morning or Sunday evening. That's not how uh, affection as a mother works. It's intentionality. Affection as a mother means when your child cries at three o'clock in the morning, you, you wake up the husband. No, you get up. <laughs> no, that's what it is, isn't it? It's that sacrificial serving others. Uh, third word, instruction. Listening to the advice of God's word and other mature Christians and being willing in God's grace to be able to uh, instruct others. And then finally, imitation. It's copying those good role models, those who are walking with the Lord and saying, that's what I would like to be. So that's uh, two, um, chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. Integrity, intentionality, instruction, and imitation. Heavenly Father, we say thank you for how you work in the lives of every Christian. And we ask that you would help, uh, help us to be willing for you to work in our lives. <clears throat> help us to let your word dwell richly in our hearts, help us um, to accept its teaching and rebuke and challenge. And we do just thank you that with your help this week, we can stand and declare the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And we pray that you'd help us to do that faithfully this week as stewards. Uh, we do pray that this week, we would have that affectionate care for others this week that would be encouragers and advisors of godly wisdom. And this week that we just appreciate one another as fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.